Testament reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. We're continuing our Advent series looking at this idea of the peaceable kingdom. And this morning, we're looking at this idea of the year of the Lord's favor as another image that the Bible gives us for that coming peaceable kingdom. Now, the children's story, The Little Engine That Could, is one of the most beloved children's stories of all time. And it's about a train full of train cars full of toys that has to get over the mountain to the good little boys and girls. And one of the toys takes it upon himself, that is the clown, to try and find an engine because that's the problem. There's no engine to take these train cars over the mountain. And so he comes to the happy locomotive and asks for help. And the happy locomotive is happy to help, but he's not strong enough. And then he goes to the pompous locomotive. And the pompous locomotive is far too important to pull these train cars full of treats and toys over the mountain. And then he goes to the powerful locomotive, who can surely do it. He's a freight engine, but he himself is too important. Then to the elderly engine, who simply just lacks the determination. So the little blue engine volunteers herself, even though she's not strong enough, apparently, to do it. But she wants to save the day for the children, and so she huffs and puffs, and she goes up the hill bravely, And all the way up is saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And she reaches the top by sheer determination and willpower. And then she goes down the other side saying, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. It's a very American tale, right? It's part of our DNA to say, I think I can. We're optimistic about the future, that we can do things with our lives by our own determination. We can reach our dreams. We can find our happiness. We can gain security. 
Well, Shel Silverstein is another children's author, and he has a little bit more pessimistic bent on this story. And it ends up a little bit differently. In the end, the engine, Little Blue Engine, thinks her way all the way up the hill to the very crest and is almost there, and then she slides back down and crashes on the rocks. (laughs) And the poem ends with the line, If the track is tough and the hill is rough, thinking you can just ain't enough. The Bible's view of reality is, I would say, much closer to Shel Silverstein's, that it really is a challenge to find ultimate happiness in this world. And there's a number of images that Isaiah gives us to comfort and to minister to those who have realized how difficult it is to get up the hill, or maybe our lives have drifted backwards and we've crashed into the rocks. We've realized that hope is a little bit more elusive than the little blue engine story makes it out to be. Verse 3, Isaiah tells us that he is speaking on behalf of the Lord and that he will provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Now, we do an Ash Wednesday service here at InTown each and every year, and each and every year you come up, and I put a cross on your head and tell you that from dust you have come, and to dust you shall return. And it's one of the few worship services that we have here that doesn't have a happy happy ending. There's not a gospel hook at the end. There's no happy ending. There's no resolution. And what are the ashes? Well, ashes or what's left over after fire completely destroys something. If you throw a log into your fireplace and you light it on fire, after a while you'll have dust, you'll have ashes at the bottom of the fireplace. Fire literally tears the wood apart at a molecular level. The wood, the trees, grasp the, the energy of the sun. Over decades and over maybe hundreds of years, it stores that that energy. And what fire does is it releases that energy. It releases the carbon. And it's a sign of decay. It's a sign of decomposition or disintegration. That's what ashes are. And ashes are applied on Ash Wednesday to someone's forehead who themselves is falling apart, who themselves are turning to ashes. In the phenomenal Coen Brothers movie, The No Country for Old Men, the sheriff's name is the very Texan Ed Tom Bell, and he's the aging sheriff who's seen enough of the world, enough pain, enough violence, and he is depressed. And he's experienced this violence very upfront and the disintegration of his own community. And the movie really is about his existential fatigue. And that he's quitting his calling, the thing that his grandfather, his father, and now he has done his whole life because he's seen enough of the world to know that he is overmatched. He's overmatched. No matter how wealthy, no matter how industrious, no matter how optimistic we are, how hard we try, one day we too will fall apart. We too will return to dust, and to ash. 
Even if we make it over that main hill of life, we've found success. We've had the education that we want. We've had the job that we want. We've found the spouse that we want. Even if we make it over that hill, it's still a race against the clock, hoping that our money doesn't run out before our health does, hoping that our life partner doesn't precede us in death, hoping that we don't get that catastrophic call in the middle of the night that turns our world upside down, something that we all have in common, no matter if we're successful and optimistic or our lives have fallen upon the rocks, is that the clock is running out on all of us, and there's nothing we can do about it. Isn't that what you came here this morning to hear, a little Christmas cheer, a little hope for the holidays? Well, the person who puts ashes on their forehead has come to the realization that like everything else in the world, they are disintegrating. Anytime we place our hope, we place our trust on something inside the system, it's ashes looking in hope to ashes. And the Christian story, the Christian gospel, the story that Isaiah tells us is that our only hope is for something outside of the system to invade, in fact, someone who is not falling apart themselves, someone who has actually conquered death. Isaiah tells his readers, put ashes on your head, acknowledge your situation. We must first despair in order to hope. And that's part of the message of Advent, is we must despair in order to hope. That's the message of this table, that we have to despair of ourselves in order to hope. Isaiah's readers, in their situation, it was desperate in every way. They had been exiled, they had been overrun, they had been assimilated into a foreign power. Their lives were on the rocks. But what this passage tells us is that this physical reality that they are experiencing mirrors a deeper spiritual reality, an existential lostness that the nation of Israel was in. And the reality was that they were overmatched in their world. And their only hope was this figure of the Messiah, the long-awaited hope of Israel who comes not to the optimistic, not to those who are at the top, not to those who have overcome life, the ones who work the hardest, the ones who claim that they can make it over the hill, but he proclaims good news to who? The poor. Verse 1, he proclaims good news to the poor. And here it's not simply the economically deprived, but it's those who are deprived of resources of healing themselves and fixing what is wrong with their world. Sheriff Bell sees this brokenness in West Texas. He sees the evil incarnate in the world, and he decides to walk away. He decides to walk away befuddled and fatigued in his efforts to make sense of this world, make sense of a moral universe that seems so utterly broken. And the movie ends with him quitting his calling, his only solace, it seems, in his conversation with his uncle is the good old days, how things used to be in his world. And it's a kind of moral paradise that he imagines that 
he is lost from, that he is exiled from. And he copes by retreating into nostalgia. We have our own ways of retreating as well. We retreat into positive thinking. We retreat into diversion. We retreat into sensuality. We retreat into nostalgia. We retreat into politics, trying to squeeze blood from a turnip. But the hope of Isaiah is comfort for those who grieve. The hope of Isaiah is those who mourn over their situation. Verse 2, who mourn over the current state of affairs in their lives and in the world, a state of affairs that they can't fix under their own auspices. And this is exactly, right, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who look at their lives and see no solution within their own power, within the world, within the cosmos that we know. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because instead of ashes, they receive a crown of beauty. Instead of mourning, they get an oil of gladness. Now that sounds more like Christmas. That sounds more like hope, like Advent hope, but how? How do we get that? Well, Isaiah paints this picture, and he makes a story for us. And in chapter 1, we get the accusation of what has gone wrong. Why are they in exile? And what he tells Israel is that they have turned away. They've prostituted themselves to other gods. They are outwardly religious, or they were outwardly religious, but they showed no loyalty to Yahweh, the true God. And so they were exiled. This is part of the reason Chapter 11, which we looked at last week, we see this vision of this strong Davidic king who will set things right, not just Israel, but set all things right, that he will usher in this peaceable kingdom, that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, and by his strong hand he will bring unity and peace across the world as far as the ends of the earth. And then chapter 42, we see a new figure. We see a servant. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand, and I will keep you, and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. We see this warrior king in chapter 11 becoming this suffering servant in chapter 42. In fact, they're the same person. And then we get to chapter 61, and we see this king, this servant, this warrior king who suffers for his people, this king's servant comes to free the captives. He comes to release the prisoners, to proclaim the day of vengeance, a reckoning for all who have harmed others. This is the work of the warrior king. But we see also that he comes to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn. This is the work of the suffering servant. 
And so we see this person, this Messiah, who Christians claim is Jesus, comes and He is the wonderful Counselor and the mighty God. He is the warrior king who is led like a lamb to the slaughter for his people. You see, this Messiah, Jesus, he gives up his royal advantage so he can come to bring comfort to the least in his kingdom. He defends the powerless by becoming powerless himself. He helps those with ashes on their heads by being turned to ashes. And we see that our reversal of fortune, freedom for captives, release for prisoners, eternal life instead of death, gladness instead of mourning, all of these reversals of fortune are all based upon God's reversal of fortune. That the great Lord, the great King, who could come in power and demand our fealty, He comes instead as a suffering servant and He gives over His life to us. And we see this Messiah. Four to five hundred years later, Jesus comes to Nazareth. It's his hometown. It's his first ministry event that Luke records in chapter 4. And Jesus goes to the synagogue, to the place where the faithful were waiting for the Messiah. And Luke tells us, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And this is where our passage in chapter 61 comes from. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He sets down the scroll. But he left something out. Did you notice? He stops right in the middle of verse 2 in Isaiah. Because what Isaiah says is that the Lord comes, to, he comes, Isaiah, on behalf of the Lord to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance of the Lord. But Jesus leaves that second part out. Jesus doesn't include vengeance because in him, He gets vengeance, and you get favor. He ushers in the peaceable kingdom by taking on all of our warfare, all of our greed, all of our pride and hatred, and in His crucifixion, all of it is disintegrated. All of it comes to ashes. We, friends, are overmatched by the world, but He is not. This warrior king, this suffering servant, comes to make ashes of everything that opposes your ultimate good and your ultimate joy. Everything that is evil and sad in our world and everything that is evil and sad inside our own hearts is turned to ashes. So friends, have Advent joy. Have Advent hope because that Messiah knows you and loves you and longs to be in relationship for you and gladly goes where you wouldn't go. He dies for you so that you can live forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would see in our brother Jesus the courage, the love, the delight, the joy that he has in bringing forth 
your peaceable kingdom. And Lord, we pray that we would place our hope not in temporal things, not in possessions, not in the security of our bank account or our achievements in life, but that we would long to find our security in you alone. And Lord, I pray that this Advent season, this Christmas season, that you would make that real to us as individuals, as families, and as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we come to the Lord's